Tonight's message will be the tenth in the series on the subject of infant salvation, and will be the second part of the view of infant salvation known as the children of God theory. And we will continue to examine this view, which we started examining last evening. This view is known as the children of God theory and bases its major premise in the view that God is the universal father of all men and that all men are the children of God by their natural birth. This view openly denies the doctrine of eternal punishment of the wicked on the basis that it would be a cruel and an unfatherly act for God to assign any of his children to hell. But if he ever should do so, it would in turn cause himself a continuing deep grief knowing that one of his children has perished. So we looked at this last Sunday evening and confessed that it is granted that this is a logical conclusion if the premise be true. If God truly be the natural father of all men, then the logical conclusion is sound and true, that it would grieve God to have to assign one of his children to hell the same way that it would grieve a natural parent to see one of their own children assigned to judicial punishment. So that if the premise is true, then it would be a logical conclusion then that there could be no such thing as the eternal punishment of the wicked. For God then would merely be dealing with all men as a father does with his children, and that is in the realm of chastisement designed to remedy the situation. And as we stated last evening in our last discussion on this issue, on this view, what this view does, it takes all of the benefits and the privileges which the Bible assigns to the children of God who are true believers, and it dispenses them to all men at large, irrespective of their character or their attitude toward God. Now, we certainly believe as believers, and particularly as Calvinistic believers, that if a person has been born into the family of God through the spiritual birth, then that person cannot and will not be cast off by God, for they are one of his children, and he begins the, the process of correcting them from their sinful ways. And this he does through loving chastisement. For what son is he whom the father loves that he does not chasten? So then you see, if we fail to make that distinction and apply it to all members of the race, then if God be the father of all men, and all men are by nature his children, and God has a fatherly love for all of his children, then he can deal with them in no other way but in loving chastisement. Therefore, there cannot be any such thing as eternal punishment. We've also seen in our previous session that several supporting passages of Scripture are used to support this view. We touched upon them. We'll deal with them in a later message. 
But they were, Genesis 1, 26, in which that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, etc. And then we went over to the Gospel of Luke, in which we have the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ with the different fathers who begat so-and-so. And then we got back to Adam, which it says, which was the Son of God. So therefore, these two passages are connected together by the advocates of this view and say that God created Adam as one of his natural-born sons. And therefore, all of Adam's descendants are the natural-born sons of God. Now, it is our task this evening to examine both the scriptural and the philosophical logic of this view to see if this be the truth of God upon which God's people are to feed. My confession of faith on the matter is that I too affirm, now listen carefully, that no child of God, adult or infant, with either sound or unsound mental faculties, can or will ever be assigned to hell by the judicial wrath of God. Now, you reflect upon that. I'll say it again, lest that some did not immediately grasp the clarity of the statement. My own confession of faith on the matter is that I, too, affirm that no child of God, infant or adult, with sound faculties or unsound faculties, can or ever will be assigned to hell by the judicial wrath of God. But believing that the scriptures present a clear doctrine on a future and endless punishment of some human beings, I must then deny outright the entirety of this view's major premise. And that major premise being again that God is the Father of all men, and that all men are his children. I must deny that, or else I must deny eternal punishment. And you must do the same uh, logically. If God is the Father of all men, all men are his children, then you must deny eternal punishment. But if you believe that the Bible does teach the eternal punishment of some members of the human race, then you must deny the premise that God is the natural Father of all men. Now, in doing so, I affirm that God is not, I repeat, is not the natural father of any human being, nor is any human being a natural child of God by birth. Instead, God is none other but a gracious father wherein he bestows adopting grace upon men of his own choosing, wherein they are then made partakers of all the benefits and the privileges of a full-fledged Son of God. So that while that we will deny that God is a natural Father of all men, we will affirm that he is a gracious Father of some men, bestowing the full benefits and privileges upon them to where that they are accepted as a full privileged son of God. Now, let's examine this premise in the Scriptures. First of all, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, the little epistle of 1 John chapter 3. 
In this passage, we want to see that the Bible makes a distinction between some men being the sons of God and some men not being the sons of God. And if the scriptures do make this distinction, then the whole major premise of this view collapses. Because again, the premise is that all men by nature are the natural born sons of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, starting there, we'll go through verse 10. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Now, there is love, there is Father, there is us. That we should be called the sons of God. All right, there is a fatherhood-childhood relationship. It's based upon love. It's bestowed upon the us. Now, is the us every member of the human race? Well, the next part of the verse clarifies that. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Here is a classification of two divisions between the us and the world. A world of unbelievers and a world of believers who have now been adopted into the family of God. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It's not something yet future. We are now the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We don't know yet what our full consummation as a son is going to be like, but we do know one thing. It's going to be like the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look in verse 3, And every man hath this hope in him, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now Christ had no sin. He came to do away with sin in people. Now, is he going to accomplish that? And if he does, it will draw the line of distinction between who are the sons of God and who are not the sons of God. That's the way the line of argument follows. Look in uh, in verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, Christ, is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, That also can be translated, doth not habitually practice sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot practice sin because he's born of God. Now watch verse 10. In this, in this principle, the children of God are manifest, they're revealed, and the children of the who? Of the devil. Now there's two classes. There's God's sons and there's the devil's sons. And how is it manifested that a human being is a child of God? He has been born into the family of God by a divine work of God. 
wherein that individual can no longer habitually live and practice a lifestyle of sin as he did in his natural birth. Now, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So here we have a clear distinction by this passage of Scripture, that there are some members of Adam's race which are correctly classified as the sons of God. And those individuals are distinct from the children of the devil, those of the world who know not God, know not Christ, and therefore do not have a kindness and affectionate spirit toward the sons of God, that is, Christ's people. Now, in seeing this distinction, then, I want to follow this line of thought in examining the major premise of this view known as the children of God view of infant salvation. I must, then, follow this statement that, first of all, we must renounce this view as false in that there are clear scriptural statements which categorically deny that fallen, unredeemed, unregenerated, unsanctified men are the children of God. That is, there are ample, clear statements in God's Word which states that a fallen, unredeemed, unsanctified, unregenerate person is not a child of God. And if there are statements to that effect then the whole major premise collapses unless some means of reconciliation can be brought together. Let's look at some of these. First of all, in John chapter 14, the Gospel of John chapter 14 and verses 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus is dealing with his disciples and he's informing them that he's about to go away to the Father. And in that information which he gave unto them, why, he brings about some sorrow on behalf of a man named Philip. In John chapter 14 and verses 7 and 8, Jesus states, If ye had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Now Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Now Philip's needing some reassurance here. And let's don't jump on Philip and be unkind to him because he's about to lose his master, the one that he's looked to. And Jesus said, Now I'm going to my Father's house. And he says, now, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come there to the Father's house except by me. Now, if you've known me, you should have known my Father also, and henceforth you know him. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip says unto him, Lord, will you show us the Father, and it'll suffice me, it'll satisfy me. Now, look at his reply in verse 9. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long with you? And yet thou hast not known me, Philip? Have I been with you for these three years, Philip? And you've known me, haven't you? Then look, he that has seen me has seen the what? Has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? 
Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Now that seemed to satisfy Philip. Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen and known the Father. Now what is the emphasis on this? What is the weight of this argument? Philip, no man knows God as Father except through me. There is a distinction. He was just not told, now Philip, you by your natural birth already know God as a Father. But no, he said, Philip, if you know me, then you know the Father. Emphasizing that no man then can truly call God his Father outside of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. Now then, let's look also in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. Here is a very familiar passage of Scripture, which is used so many, many times in Christian evangelism. John, chapter 1, and verse 11. He came into his own, his own people, that is, Christ, and his own, the Jews, received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power or the authority, the right, the legal right, to become the what? The sons of God, who? Even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, here's some individuals who were born of God. In doing so, they express their saving faith in Jesus Christ as God's appointed representative. And whoever is not ashamed to identify, now follow me, with the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives them the legal authority and right to call the name or bear the name as one of his children. So there is a distinction, then, between a person who refuses to receive Christ, when they refuse to do so, they have no access unto God as a father. But whoever receives Christ in saving faith, then God bestows upon them the right, the privileges of sonship and membership in his family. But those who are outside of Christ... There is no promise given to them of God being their father. Let's look now in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Romans 8, verses 15 through 17. Here the apostle deals with adoption into the family of God. We read in in verse uh, 15, We'll read verse 14 first of all. They are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit also beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now, here is a distinction between two classes of men. 
Those who have received the ministry of the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And if they are children, then they are heirs of God. That is, they have a right to be in the family of God. And joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. So then, a person cannot call God Abba Father outside of being in living, vital union with God's Son, Jesus Christ. So no man has a right to promise another member of the human race that God is his Father when that person is outside of vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I raise this question. If all men were according to this view, the natural sons of God then any man would be a natural heir of God and would be entitled to seize directly upon his heirship, that which he has a right to. But the apostle limits participation in the inheritance to those who are co-partners with the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if all men are the natural sons of God, then what right does the Apostle Paul have to restrict the inheritance to a particular class of men? He can't do it. But that's because the Apostle never knew of any such thing as all men being the natural sons of God. And therefore he could teach with great clarity and with great weight and force that except a person be in Christ, he cannot call God Abba Father. He has no access to the privileges of the family. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. Speaking of those who are unregenerate, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of what? Of wrath, even as others. There was a time, even in the life of the child of God who is now saved, that they were called by nature, by their birth, a child of wrath. Now then, look in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 38. Matthew 13, verse 38. We're picking out a few texts at random to show that the Bible does make a distinction with clear scriptural statements that not all men are the sons or the children of God. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 38. Find it here in just a moment. In one of Jesus' parables, he states, The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the what? Of the wicked one. Now, there is a clear statement showing that there are two classes of children. One who are children of the kingdom, and the others children of the devil. The Lord willing, in our next message, we're going to do a detailed exposition of that famous passage found in the Gospel of John in which Jesus deals with the Jews who claim to be the natural children of God. 
But Jesus plainly told them, If God were your father, or if Abraham were your father, you'd do the works of Abraham. But ye are of your father the devil. So these are clear-cut passages which we believe then contradicts the major premise of this view that all men by their natural birth have a rightful inheritance to be able to call God as their Father who is in heaven. Now, secondly, we then affirm this view to be false by now explaining the manner in which God became the Father of men. There are statements which we have just covered showing that not all men are the children of God. Now then, we want to explain the manner in which God became or becomes the father of men. In order to clarify this in our thinking more so, we must then define what we mean by a relationship. That seems to be the big word with the younger generation today. Are you having a relationship? Uh, Who are you related to? Uh, that seems to be a, a very important word with this generation. So often it has a connotation of uh, something of a sexual connotation of having a relationship or an affair. But I want to define Webster's definition in the relationship between God and man. Webster defines a relation as any sort of a connection perceived or imagined between two or more things, any comparison which the mind may make. So now we want to see what is the relationship between God and man. In all relations for our thought patterns, there are at least two terms which must be understood. There is the object on the right hand and the object on the left. The left-hand object is called the relative, and the right-hand object is called the correlative. For example, we have a father and a son. The one left-hand is the relative object. The correlative object is the son. Illustrate again. We have the word husband. That's the relative object. The correlative object is that of the what? Of the wife. You cannot have a husband without a wife, all right? You cannot have a father without a son. In understanding relationships, you are making a mental comparison between two objects. Now, understanding that, let's look at the relationship between God and man. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, the statement is there said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God proceeded to do that. The scripture then reveals to us three distinct relationships that exist between God and man. The first of these distinct relationships is that of the creator and the creature. That is, the relative object is God the creator. The correlative object is man 
the creature. You cannot have a creator without a creature. So one of the basic relationships between God and man is that God is the creator and man is the creature. The second distinct relationship which is presented to us in the Bible is that of God as the sovereign Lord and man as the servant of God. God created Adam in his own likeness. Adam became a creature. But listen carefully, God never creates anything but what he rules. If he fails to rule it, it will soon rule him. Now, that is not only true of God as a creator, it is a true of all society and family relationships. If we do not control the criminals in our society, the criminals will soon control society. If a father does not control his children, soon his children will control him. The moment God created Adam and Adam became a creature, God quickly spoke to Adam and reminded him and informed him he was the Lord and Adam was the servant. Now, it's important that we understand the creaturehood of man existed first, and then man became a servant. Then the third distinct relationship is presented to us in the Bible, and that is that of God as a father and man as his son. But there are but two ways in which a person can become the child of another. Two ways and two ways only. Can you, know, can you name them for me? You can either become the son of another... By first, natural generation or birth. Or secondly, you can become the child of another by legal adoption. Now, since Adam was called a son of God, there was a sense then in which Adam could call God his father. And since there are only two ways in which Adam could have become God's child either by natural generation or by adoption, it is important, if we're going to understand the redemptive program of God at all, to understand how it is that God and Adam became related as father and son. Let's examine this thing of natural generation first. By natural generation or birth, the parent or the begetter imparts his own life and nature to the child. For example, in Genesis 1, we have it recorded that God commanded for the plants, the animals, and mankind to propagate after their what? Their own kind. Their own kind. So that a cow can beget beget a horse. A dog can produce a dog, but a dog cannot produce a cat. And men can produce human beings, but they can't produce plants or animals. Whatever the begatter does, he or they, as man and wife, impart to the child their very nature and very life itself. 
Now listen carefully, because I hope to clarify something here that may help us all in coming days to understand our, our Bibles. Adam was not the generated child of God. For if he was, he would be nothing but a little God. In the same sense in which a baby is but a little adult, or a little human being, rather. Say it again, Brother Gables. Adam was not the natural generated child or son of God. For if he were, God would have had to impart his own nature into Adam, and Adam would be nothing but a little God. But God did not put his own essence of his nature in Adam. He created him, that is true. But he also created animals and plants and minerals. And he did not communicate his nature to animals, plants, and minerals. And he did not communicate his nature to man. Man is a human being. He is not a little god. And that will also help us if we understand that in regeneration. When God regenerates a person and saves them... He does not change any of the physical or soulish faculties of their nature. He only grants that nature a ruling disposition to have an appetite for the things of God Almighty. You're still a human being before you're saved. You're a human being after you're saved. You don't have part of God's essence of his nature put in you. The new birth is a figurative term. Regeneration is a figurative term. In the creation of Adam, Adam was not the natural-born generated son of God Almighty. Well, now if this be the case, then how then did Adam get to be the son of God? How could he be called the son of God? And that is by the second manner in which God has and men have of having a parent-child relationship, and that is through adoption. Adoption is the only other manner in which Adam could have become the child of God. But adoption presupposes the existence of a person being adopted. Hence, the creaturehood of Adam must be thought of as preceding his divine adoption into the family of God. Now, get your order. Creator, creature. Lord, servant. Father, child. But how did Adam get into that family of God? Not by natural generation but by God disposing a natural adoption, giving him adoption papers to be a right, have right into the family of God. Now then, adoption, to understand it, is judicial. It's something you go to the courts about. When I had my first child, my wife and I, I guess I better include her in this, to get that approved. 
there was just a natural process of generation that took place. But when you adopt, that's another matter. You've got to go through some proceedings. There's got to be a judicial right bestowed upon that child to have access into the privileges of that given family. But adoption is not only judicial. Adoption is voluntary. And it is not necessitated on the part of the one doing the adoption. That is, it is not necessary for any parent to adopt. There's not something which of necessity imposes that obligation upon a parent or upon a father. In short, then, God voluntarily adopted the human servant which he had created. And I'm putting it, wording it carefully. God adopted the human servant which he had created and bestowed upon him the rights and privileges of a son in his own family. All right, you say, Brother Jim, I'll grant that, but my, you've backed yourself in a big corner now. For if you've got Adam in the family of God as a son... Then this view which you're examining says, how then can God, as a father, condemn his own child, Adam, or any of his own descendants? Well, I don't think we've quite got ourselves painted into the corner, although it may sound like it. Because if you read the first three chapters of Genesis, God created Adam, gave him Privileges, but gave him rights, rather responsibilities, as a servant. Then adopted him into the family of God. But, beloved, that was all mutable and conditioned upon Adam's adoption papers. There were some conditions which Adam must perform as a servant to gain full citizenship rights on a permanent basis, and there were some conditions which Adam must perform as an adopted child to gain permanent citizen or other family rights in the family. Now then, something happened when Adam forfeited those rights. When Adam sinned, he not only lost his citizenship in the moral kingdom of God in the sense that he was no longer viewed by God as a first-class citizen, and secondly, he lost his sonship, his paper rights, by adoption. He forfeited those, and now then he is an outcast, disinherited son. He is cast out, disowned by God Almighty. I want to state it in this order. The question is, how can God, as a father, condemn one of his children? And But this thing is done, is it not? Adam was called a son of God. God does this. How can he do it and be a father? Now then, listen carefully. In order for God to condemn anyone 
of his children, he must cease to be a father, and man must cease to be his child. If Adam were the natural generated child of God, then God could not do this without affecting his own happiness in return. For the only way that he could condemn his child would be to annihilate him. Now, some teach the annihilation of the wicked. God could just have annihilated Adam as a rebellious child, and that would have eliminated Adam, but it would not have eliminated the grief which God would have in his own being toward what happened to his son. How can God condemn any creatures of the human race? He must in some way cease to be a father, and they must cease to be his children. So that, to put it all in this order of thought, listen carefully. The human race was first the creature of God, then the servant of God, and then the adopted child of God. On account of sin, God repealed the adopting act, for you can do that judicially. All right? You adopt a child out here, and that child doesn't live up to the conditions of the home, you can take that child to court and disinherit it, because it's an adopted child. An illegitimate child has no rights under, under judicial law. But remember, Adam was not the natural-born child of God. He was the adopted child of God. And if he does not meet the rules of God as Lord, as a citizen, and the rules of God as the father in the house, he's going to forfeit his citizenship and his sonship as well. On account of a sin, then God repealed the adopting act, and the race of man was disowned and disinherited. And no member of that race is now the child of God, except by another act of gracious adoption on account of the work of the second Adam. All men were in the beginning the adopted sons of God. But on account of sin entering the race, the adopting act by nature was annulled. And no man is now by nature the child of God. All have been repudiated. The sonship of the race, therefore, is in the past tense. It was. It is not now. And if it ever becomes again, it must be by grace. So that it is unscriptural to say that any member of Adam's race is now a child of God or a son of God unless they have had the gracious act of adoption bestowed upon them. The creature relation, on the one hand, could not be annulled unless you annihilate the creature. The servant relationship cannot be abolished without transforming the servant into something else. But the family relationship 
which is the product of generation, must be perpetual. That is, once a son, always a son by natural generation. But sonship by adoption may be and is by men frequently annulled. So God can annul Adam's sonship if he fails to carry out his duty in the garden. And, beloved, that's what happened. Adam sinned and he forfeited his right to be God's heir. You remember when God said, Now look out on all this, Adam. This is yours. You rule over it. But Adam forfeited that when he chose to sin. And all of his descendants fell in Adam so that they are not now to be viewed as natural-born sons of God, for that adoption by natural birth has been annulled. Now, this was the nature of man's original relationship to God. And on account of sin, it has now been annulled. And man's state, apart from grace, is that of a discarded, disowned, and disinherited child of God. That is, he is no longer by nature a son of God Almighty. So, beloved, this is how, then, that God can condemn a member of the human race because they are not his own natural generated children. All men forfeited their sonship in Adam. Now, no man is by physical birth a child or a son of God. And except a man be born again, he can never enter the citizenship of God's kingdom, and he can never claim a right to be an heir of God except he be in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is then the biblical and the logical answer to this premise of how that God can condemn a creature without feeling grieved because that creature is no longer his son or his child. Now, beloved, we don't have much problem associating the fact that God can create a creature like a horse and let that creature die and that be the end of it. Now, we lost our little dog here two weeks ago, the only little dog our family's ever had, for, for about 14 years old. We carried him up and buried him, had a little short uh, graveside service, and reflected upon the fact that that's the end of our little dog. It's not the end of us. We live on. But, beloved, that creature which was created for the glory of God, served the purpose of the glory of God, and now its time has come to an end. I do not understand the scriptures to teach that God is sitting up there in heaven grieving over the death of that little dog. Now, beloved, you and I, as members of the human race, are first of all creatures. Then we are servants and in Adam we were the natural adopted sons of God. 
But when we sinned in Adam, we forfeited our sonship. And now all men are viewed by God as creatures and disobedient servants in his moral government. So that God can justly, judicially condemn a human being as a creature, as not only a creature, but a rebel against his moral government. And do so without any due lasting grief on his own part. Now, if you believe that the Bible teaches the doctrine of hell, which is a hard doctrine confessed to human nature, then you must also come up with some type of a biblical explanation of how it is that God then can go throughout all eternity to come with people in hell, human beings in hell, and he not be grieved over it. And the answer is that those individuals are not his sons, they are not his children, they are but creatures and rebels against his moral universe. Now, next week, the Lord willing, we must then do an exposition of John chapter 8, verses 37 through 48, in which Jesus almost gets crucified on the spot for dealing with this issue right here, are all men by nature the children of God. And then, after finishing that, we will look at the gospel message of adoption, the good news how that if you have a genuine concern over your soul, there is a way wherein God has made available access unto the Father's house. There is a way for a sinner to be made accepted as a first-class member of God's kingdom and a first-class son in his family. And that is through the gospel of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I close tonight by stating again to you, my hearers, do not go to the final judgment trusting in your natural birth that you are a child of God. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. You must be born again.